You're listening to an audio sermon from Redemption Church in Olds, Alberta. It is our prayer that through this ministry, we will see lost people saved, saved people matured, and mature people multiplied all to the glory of God. For more information about our church, or to let us know how we can be praying for you, visit us online at www.redemptionolds.com or send us an email at info at redemptionolds.com. conversation with him. Here's what it means. Uh, It's the gospel on display every time. Um, So far as I know, Paul never responded to that gospel. And in May of this last year, he actually passed away. Still asking, I suspect, uh, what does it mean? But it's interesting how that question is just kind of in our nature. It, it comes out almost involuntarily. We see something amazing, something beautiful, something out of the ordinary, and, and, it, and it builds up in us. What, what does this mean? That's the right question. Especially if we believe there is a, a personal God who, who created and, and formed this world. What does it mean? And yet, how often we get complacent. We get inoculated to these things. When's the last time you had to pull the car over um, to just look at the rainbow and marvel at its meaning, the, the, the justice and the mercy of God? As we approach Christmas, the same is true. We hear the Christmas story over and over again. We see the nativity pageant. We hear it in the songs and we get, we get comfortable with it. We cease to be amazed at this miracle before us. What does it mean? When's the last time we asked that? We've been looking at the announcement of the birth of Jesus through Luke 1 over the last few weeks. And so far, um, we looked at verses 26 to 31, seeing there that, that he came to humble beginnings. He came as humble. He came to the humble. And he came for the humble. He came to rescue the humble. Verses 32 to 33, then, we saw uh, last week this, this future promise. Though he came from humble beginnings, he would come to a glorious end. That he would be known as the great God and the great King and the great firstborn and our great hope. This week, we're going to look at verses 34 and 35, and we see just kind of one small piece in the puzzle, one, one step in that process from the humble beginning to the glorious end, and that is that he came by, sorry, from humble beginning to a glorious end by miraculous means. I want us to just hit pause. We come to this Sunday, the last Sunday before Christmas, just Put down the hustle and bustle, take a step back, take a deep breath, and have a fresh look at some of these things that we've become accustomed to. Ask through fresh eyes of of wonder and amazement, what does this mean? Look with me, Luke chapter 1. I'm going to read, I'm going to start back in 26 where we started this series and and read through to verse 35, Um, but it's verses 34 and 35 that we're going to focus our attention on, but follow along as I read. Luke 1, starting in verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth 
to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. She was greatly troubled at this saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great. He will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Would you pray with me? Father, forgive us. Forgive us that we would ever be bored of hearing of these glorious miracles that we would ever be complacent toward these things, to lose a sense of, of wonder and awe. God, would you, would you refresh us this morning? Would you give us new eyes to see again uh, the glory of the virgin birth, the wonder of Christ coming into this earth, to understand uh, on a new and deeper level why, why you did it this way, what this means for us. Lord, I pray that you would be at work through your word. God, that, that whatever I say, God, if there's anything that I've prepared, anything that I've come to say that is not of you, that those words would just be lost and forgotten and fall to the ground. But God, that your word would go forth, that you would, as you promised, send it out and that it would not return void, but would accomplish what you sent it out to do. God, would you build uh, your church? Would you give us a fresh view of your glory this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. So the miracle of the virgin birth. Now to be precise, the, the birth is not miraculous. The birth itself was somewhat normal. It's the conception um, that is so miraculous. And look at this miracle. There's, there's the kind of this past, present, future breakdown in these two verses. So uh, the fact that it's a, a virgin birth actually points us backwards to see what God has been doing. He's, he's building on something. And so um, we're going to call that the method of the miracle. Why did Jesus enter the world this way? The first part of verse 35 then tells us uh, about the present act. What's going to happen here and now for, for Mary? How is this going to happen? The Holy Spirit coming upon her, the power of the Most High overshadowing her. Um, we're going to call that the mechanism of the miracle. This is kind of the how-to, the, the, the details of it. And, and there's meaning in how the Lord accomplishes that. Um, and then we'll end looking at the marvel of the miracle, the wonder of this child who is a human baby who is called Holy, the Son of God. So we have a lot of ground to cover. Let's jump into point one, verse 34, the method of the miracle. So verse 34, Mary says to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? Stop. Give your head a shake. This is amazing. A virgin is about to conceive a child. What does this mean? It's, it's remarkable. Well, before we get to what it means, we need to understand 
what happened at the most basic level. The virgin birth is a miracle that has so often been denied and discarded and cast aside. Particularly in our modern age, the rise of Christian liberalism came in strong and those of higher intellect decided they needed to kind of get rid of some of these hurdles, some of these old foolish ways of thinking. We know better. We know that virgins do not conceive. So let's just push this aside. They wanted to demythologize the Bible, as they called it. Others would lean somewhat the other way and say, well, this is just, that's all it is, is a myth. It's a beautiful myth, the virgin birth. And, and so it's this kind of vague moral point. It's not meant to be taken literally. We just need to kind of understand what's meant by it. There are truly more reasons to deny the virgin birth than I think there are people who deny it. Um, let me just make a, a couple of quick points on this. First, you need to understand who Luke is and why Luke is writing He's a medical doctor. And yeah, that would have been a little more primitive in his day, but, but he's a man of science. And, and listen to why he's writing this book. Look at the opening verses of the book of Luke. Just flip over one page. Luke chapter 1, verse 1. And as much as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of these things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word and the word have delivered them to us. It seemed good to me also, having followed all these things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you've been taught. Does that sound like a man who's about to engage in mythology? telling some, some fairy stories the, from which we should draw some kind of vague moral point. Maybe someone who's just not very concerned about the details, not very concerned about being careful in what he says. No, the, that's not Luke. Luke is working hard to compile from eyewitnesses a simple, careful, accurate, historical account. Others have suggested, uh, we just read too much into it. Luke didn't intend that. The virgin there should, should not be understood to be a technical virgin, just a, just a young lady. And they would point back to the prophecy of Isaiah 7.14 where the, the English Bible says the virgin will be with child. The, the Hebrew there is not as clear. And we'll, we'll come to that in a few minutes. Um, we'll talk about that. Um, but in Luke, as Mary's responding to Gabriel, um, the, there's a reason she's surprised. There's a reason she is shocked and asking, how could this be? How can this happen? The Greek literally could be translated, how will this be since I have not known a man? Now she knows who Joseph is. She is engaged. It's not that she's never met a man. Um, if all Gabriel was saying was, soon you'll become pregnant by a man, she'd have said, yeah, I could have told you that. I'm about to get married. That's kind of how this works. But that's not what she's saying. Um, she's being polite. It's somewhat veiled, but it is explicit. The word no. I have not known a man. Um, that was a euphemism for intercourse. There's no other way around it. It was very clear. I cannot be pregnant because I've not been with a man. That's also why down in verse 37, Gabriel finds it necessary to say, for nothing will be impossible with God. 
You wouldn't have to say that if a young woman was going to become pregnant by her husband and have a child. That's, there's nothing impossible about that. But the angel says, you, Mary, as a virgin, will conceive, will bear a child, and your relative Elizabeth, in her old age, having been barren these many years, she also will conceive. And it's not impossible, because what appears humanly impossible is not impossible with God. There's no doubt. This is presented as a miracle. Either the virgin birth happened or our Bibles are just false. There's no two ways around it. God is working outside of the normal parameters of nature. But here's the problem. We so often stop there. We, we defend the, the fact of the virgin birth. We argue that it, that it did happen, and we're satisfied with that. We never get to asking why it happened. And so this last point is, on one hand, a, a biblical argument for the virgin birth um, and, and showing that this was what happened. But more importantly, um, I think in this, we get beyond the reality of the virgin birth, and, and we begin to answer the question, what does it mean? The method of this miracle, the way that Jesus came about was not coincidental, it was not accidental, and in fact, it wasn't even anything new. This should not have been a surprise to them. Go all the way back, Genesis 3.15. This is the first prophecy in the entire Bible, and it's pointing forward to Jesus. Sin had just entered into the world for the first time and God is laying out for Adam and Eve the curse. This is what will now be broken in your world because of sin. And in the process of explaining this curse uh, is this glorious promise, this prophecy. He says to Satan, um, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. So, there's going to be a child, a male child, and Satan will bruise his heel. Satan will inflict on him a, a non-lethal blow. But he would crush Satan's head. He would destroy Satan. And, and remarkably, this male to be born is said to be the offspring, not of the man, not even of humanity, but specifically the offspring of the woman. And in fact, it's even odder than that. The word the Lord uses here that's translated offspring is, is technically the word seed. Not to get back too far into biology class, but the word seed is not typically associated with a woman. The woman has the egg, the man has the seed, and that's how this word was used throughout Scripture. Uh, it, it's, it's not exactly conclusive, but this ought to cause us to raise our eyebrow a bit. Say, something's going on here. This is odd. Let's put a pin in that and continue to follow and, and see if this doesn't build into something. And as we read on through the Old Testament, what we find is a succession of miraculous births. Think about this. Abraham and Sarai, unable to have children, both way past childbearing years, and God promised, you will have a son. Miraculously, less than a year later, Isaac is born. Isaac was the firstborn of this new family of God promised to Abraham. Um, but it was about this miraculously born son 
that God said to Abraham, Genesis 22:2. He said, take your son, your only son. Sound familiar? Your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. And Isaac, as the sacrifice, carried on his own back the wood for the fire up the hill. You know the story. The Lord provided a substitute for Isaac in the last minute, spared his life. And Isaac then, Genesis 25, marries Rebekah. And Rebekah then is barren. Until he prays for her and, and she bore twins, then Esau and Jacob. Jacob, of course, having his name changed to Israel, another miraculous born son. Israel, Israel, the, the beginning of this proliferation, the multitude, the 12 sons who become the 12 tribes of Israel. Genesis 30, Jacob, Israel, has two wives, but the, the wife that he loves, Rachel, is barren. Genesis 30, 22 to 24. Then God remembered Rachel and God listened to her and opened her womb. She conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach. And she called his name Joseph. This miraculously born son had a dream that, that one day all of his brothers would bow down before him. He was beloved by his fathers, but he was mistreated, hated, abused by his brothers, wrongfully imprisoned, sold as a slave to Egypt. But his humiliation into the darkest prison in Egypt would give rise to his exaltation as the right-hand man to Pharaoh. And from that position, he would save his brothers. He would rescue the nation of Israel. Jump ahead then to Judges 13. Israel disobeyed God. He had given them over uh, as, as discipline under, under the rule of the Philistines. And the Lord appeared to a man named Manoah, whose wife was barren. Judges 13, 3, we read this. The angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Behold, you are barren and have not born children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. Therefore be careful and do not drink, sorry, drink no wine or strong drink and eat nothing of unclean for behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. No razor shall come upon his head, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb, and he shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. This miraculous born son was Samson. What do we know about Samson? Well, he ultimately would be taken captive by the Philistines, mocked, ridiculed, had his eyes gouged out. But in his death, he would stretch out his arms, pushing over the pillars of the temple of the Philistines, bringing it crashing down. And in that act would kill 3,000 of the rulers of the Philistines. And in his death, had victory over the Philistines and set the people of Israel free. Fast forward to 1 Samuel 4. Hannah is unable to bear children. She prayed uh, to the Lord in the temple, pleading for a son. And she did conceive and bore a son whom she named Samuel. Samuel was dedicated to the Lord. He was raised in the presence of the Lord in the temple. And he became uh, one of the greatest prophets of Israel. 
bringing the, the word of God to the people, leading them to follow the Lord. Next, 2 Kings 4, is the barren Shunammite woman. This is the most obscure of the list. We don't know much about her except that she feared the Lord and she was hospitable to the prophet Elisha. And as Elisha stayed there, he learned that she was barren and praying for a child. And sure enough, she bore a son. And that son uh, would later die and be raised again to, do, to new life by Elisha. All of this, these, these miraculously born sons that God is doing amazing things through, uh, is fresh in the rearview mirror as we come to this prophecy in Isaiah. Isaiah 7.14, a very familiar prophecy. We see it lots around uh, the Christmas season. But this prophecy, I think, is a, is a little bit more complex than a lot of people realize. Ahaz uh, was king over Judah, and Judah was under siege. There were two large armies encamped around them, uh, the armies of Damascus and Samaria. And the Lord told Ahaz, um, I will rescue you. I will set the people of Israel free. I will deliver you. Um, and that's where this prophecy then comes in, Isaiah seven fourteen. 14. Um, Therefore... The Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin will conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel. And that's where we stop, but that's not where the prophecy stops. There's more to it in its original context. He, the child, shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be destroyed. So God made a promise to Ahaz, I'm going to set Israel free from these oppressive, these armies that threaten to destroy you. And, and the sign that, that, that God would do it was, was this virgin would be with child. So this was not originally about Jesus and Mary. This is originally about Isaiah. And actually, Isaiah's wife and her son. It was about a, a timeline. This is when my deliverance is going to come. Um, and, and you'll notice, um, it says not a virgin will conceive, but the virgin, a particular virgin. Um, Isaiah's virgin, his young lady, his wife would conceive. That word there, uh, Alma, is typically means young woman. I've seen some good arguments that it should mean be translated virgin, but it's not really clear. But this is more about a timeline. She's going to conceive and bear a son. And before that son is old enough to, to differentiate between good and bad, um, he's going to be eating curds and honey. If you're eating curds and honey, you're not under siege. You're living a good life. You're living in, in, in relative prosperity. He's saying this is going to happen before that boy grows up. It's a timeline for God's presence. And it would be a sign of Emmanuel. That God is with them. That God rescues his people looking at these armies of Damascus and Samaria. And if you just keep reading through Isaiah from chapter 7 into chapter 8, you'll see this prophecy is fulfilled. It happens. Isaiah 8, 3 and 4, Isaiah says, And I went to the prophetess. I think that's no longer a virgin birth. I went to the prophetess, his wife, and she conceived and bore a son. Then the Lord said to me, Call his name Mahershalal Hashbaz. And we think, wow. 
I uh, wish I'd have known that when I was having kids. We missed that gem of a biblical name. Um, literally, it means hurry to the spoil. When is there spoil? Well, the spoil is what's left over when you've decimated your enemy armies. You go and collect their swords and their trinkets and their armor and you, and you pillage their houses. Saying, have this son that I've said, before he gets to a certain age, you're going to be free and, and name him hurry to the spoil. For before the boy knows how to cry my mother or my father, I think that's a pretty similar age marking, knowing good and evil, able to, to say my mother, my father. The wealth of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria will be carried away before the kings of Assyria. God was with them. He would rescue them. He gave them peace. This was the original prophecy. But at the same time, as we're reading the book of Isaiah, these prophecies of a child continue to grow and to build. And and it's very quickly we start to realize there's something more going on here. This prophecy of the, the virgin being with child, it didn't end with Isaiah's son. Because after Isaiah 8, we come to Isaiah 9. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. That's... That's not Isaiah's son. That's far too grand for Isaiah's son. There's something bigger here that God is doing, and it doesn't end there. We go on to chapter 11. He talks about the the shoot from the stump of Jesse, the the house of Jesse, the kingdom of the family of David. Jesse's David's father would would be cut off, but a shoot would rise up, a stem. And from there, he begins to make these promises of Of peace. Unbelievable peace. Verse 6 talks about the the wolf dwelling with the lamb, the leopard lying down with the young goat, the young child playing in the cobra's nest and not being hurt. Verse 9, for all the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. He's, He's talking about the new heavens and the new earth. This child that is coming is going to bring this about. So we start to understand. Isaiah 7.14 was partially fulfilled. There was an immediate application, but there's also a greater fulfillment. And Israel is looking at this going, there's more coming. There's another child that's going to fit these parameters, and it will be Emmanuel in in an infinitely greater way. It's about Jesus, the true child, the ultimate rescuer who was coming. The last Miraculous birth is John the Baptist, promised and fulfilled in Luke chapter 1. He was the one who would come and pave the way for the Messiah. And so when Gabriel announces the virgin birth to Mary, this is not a new thing. This is not some kind of solo party trick, standalone miracle. No, this is the pinnacle. This is the fulfillment, the completion of this long line of miracles that have been building up to this point. God has been doing this from the very beginning. What's the meaning? 
coming out of this? Well, it means that Jesus is the fulfillment of of Genesis 3.15. He is the seed of the woman. The one who would be bruised by Satan, but who would crush his head. It means that Jesus would be, would be the new and better Isaac. The only beloved son of the father who would in fact carry the wood for his own sacrifice up the hill. Except where God spared Isaac, spared Abraham from sacrificing his own son. He did not spare his son. Means that Jesus is like Jacob, the first, the the source of this new family, this new people of God. Means Jesus is like Joseph, who would be uh, hated and and detested by his brothers, who would be brought to humiliation to to the lowest point, but in that humiliation would then be raised up in glory, and in that glory would rescue the people of God. Means that Jesus is like Samson, who would rescue God's people from their enemies, stretching out his hands, bringing victory in his death. It means that Jesus is like Samuel, who was raised in the presence of God, who knew God, and who came to to reveal God to us, to tell us about God, to, to show us who he is, to lead us to follow him. It means that Jesus is like the Shunammite woman's son, who died and was raised again to life. He would be like all of them, and yet in every case, far greater. Far greater. They were all just shadows pointing forward to Jesus, the substance. So as we see in Jesus' miraculous birth is greater than theirs. Whereas all of those preliminary births, those those lesser foreshadowing miraculous sons, those were all God doing a miracle in overcoming barrenness. But in the true, full, promised rescuer at at the pinnacle, at the mountaintop, now the climax of it all, God doesn't just overcome barrenness. He he removes the man from the equation altogether. He's making a point. I do this. This is God's work. He's showing that our our salvation, our rescue from sin and death doesn't come by ordinary human effort. It doesn't come by human means, but by his powerful work and his grace. His mighty hand doing what what we never could have done on our own. Side note, wonder why there are so many other historical religions that have these so-called virgin birth stories. And and people look at Christianity and say, well, long before there was Jesus, there, there were virgin birth stories in the, the Sumerians and in the Egyptians and in Greek mythology. Christianity just kind of ripped that off. No, no, quite the opposite. Do you know who else is able to read the Bible? You know who else is able to look at prophecies and understand what's going on? You know who else was able to see the virgin birth for centuries before it came? Satan. He saw this Developing and in his way, as he always does, copying and counterfeiting the work of God, he began to throw up smoke screens. He began to, to make his own myths, most of them grotesque, of gods copulating with women in an attempt to deceive the world and distract from the glory of what God would do. That's the method of this virgin birth. 
that God is doing this in a very specific way to show that Jesus is the fulfillment of all these things that have been coming. Secondly, we see the mechanism of the miracle, and we'll pick up our pace from here. Um, How did it happen? Why is this significant? Mary asks, how will this be since I'm a virgin? Um, She's bewildered. She understands the birds and the bees. She knows that's not the normal way. So what's the way going to be? What exactly is going to happen? And Gabriel tells her, verse 35, the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Unlike Satan's counterfeits, um, the language here is not sexual or explicit in any way. Um, There's no hint of that. The Holy Spirit would come over her. The power of the Most High overshadow her. Notice the whole Trinity is involved here, right? The Most High, that's God the Father. It's by His power. The Holy Spirit is the active agent carrying out the plan of the Father. And the Son is the one who has been sent and is being implanted in the womb of Mary. The virgin birth and indeed our very salvation is a a Trinitarian event. But I want to pick up on one little nugget from this that I think opens up another aspect as we try to understand the meaning of the virgin birth. Um, The overshadowing of Mary by the power of the Most High um, ties us into another biblical theme, and, and I have struggled hard to make this clear, so I hope you're able to track with me. Um, the Greek word that, that Luke uses there that's translated overshadowed, um, it, it's from the root skia, which means to dwell, to settle, to come to rest. In the Old Testament, there's a, a Hebrew word um, that is parable to skia, and it's the word shekan, from which we get shekinah glory. The presence of God dwelling, settled, present. The glory of God come down. So connect those two words. We'll return back to that in a minute. Track with me. Adam and Eve are placed in the Garden of Eden. They have everything they need. They have perfect peace. They have fulfillment, safety, rest. Most importantly, they have the presence of God. They are with the Lord. They they knew him personally directly until they sinned. They ate from the tree of which God had commanded them not to eat. And because of their rebellion, their relationship with the Lord is broken. Their experience of his presence is is cut off. They're, They're sent out of the garden, away from the presence of the Lord. But God would not let that be the end. He he was working out his plan. He had planned to rescue a people, to reconcile them to himself, to restore a people to his presence. Just to hit a few of the high points, the Lord rescued his people Israel out of Egypt. He brought them to Mount Sinai. Exodus 24, 16 says, The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it for six days. And on the seventh day, he called Moses out of the midst of the cloud. The glory of the Lord dwelt. The word dwelt there is shekan. The glory of the Lord shekinahed on Mount Sinai. His presence descended there. From Mount Sinai then, God instructed them to build the tabernacle. The word tabernacle is built off of the root word shekan. This is the, the presence. This is the, the tent. 
and the climax of the entire book of Exodus, Exodus 40, 34 to 35, as they finished building the tabernacle, the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. The cloud settled on the tabernacle. It's the same word, shikan. The, the Shekinah glory of the Lord has, has moved from Mount Sinai into the tabernacle. God is saying, my, my glory, my presence will now go with you as you leave. As you go away from the mountain, you're able to take the tabernacle and my Shekinah glory will follow you. My presence will be with you. And they, and they encamped in a circle around the tabernacle. Once the people of Israel were brought through the wilderness, settled into the promised land, and Solomon built the temple, the, the permanent structure that, that would replace the temple, or the tabernacle. Um, the Ark of the Covenant was brought into the temple for the first time, and Second Chronicles 5.14 says that a cloud so filled the temple. So the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of God. The, the word Shekinah is not used there, but the connection of the Shekinah glory and the cloud had been on Mount Sinai and in the tabernacle, and here it is again. The temple is, is the presence of God. Both the tabernacle and the temple were built with bright gold and colors and, and carvings of trees and fruit and, and imagery of the Garden of Eden. God was saying, this is how you come back to my presence, back to the garden-like state. You come through Sinai, you come through the tabernacle, you come through the temple, and now as Gabriel comes and tells Mary, you're going to be with child. This is going to happen in your womb. The Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High is going to overshadow you. The Greek word is skia, and if any Hebrew person was reading that, they would have thought Shekinah. God's glory is coming down into the womb of Mary. His presence would no longer be accessed through Mount Sinai, no longer accessed through the tabernacle or the temple, but the Shekinah glory of the Lord fully and completely in a, in a new and glorious way has come to the womb of the virgin. Among the many promises looking forward to the coming Messiah is Zechariah 2.10. Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion, for behold, I come and I will dwell in your midst, declares the Lord. Literally, I will Shekinah, I will tabernacle among you. And when Jesus came, John 1.14 says this, The word became flesh and dwelt, tabernacled, Shekinahed among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. The presence of the Lord now dwelt among us in Jesus. He's the presence of God dwelling among us. He is God's plan to, to restore us to relationship to him. Not in a mediated way. Not through a, a building, but directly through his son. 
the mechanism of the virgin birth, the way God carried out this miracle is so intentional. The power of the Most High overshadowing Mary is laying the foundation for this truth. The meaning of the virgin birth is that the presence of the Lord has come in Christ. In him, we have restored relationship to God. Through him, we can return back to a a garden of Eden-like state and, and better. Remember Isaiah 9 and 11. That's what this child is going to bring about. That finally brings us to the marvel of the miracle. This is the the final result of it. Verse 35. It says, The Holy Spirit will become upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. A child will be born, and we, he, he will be a human child from a human mother, but he will also be called holy, the Son of God. This is a glimpse into what we call the, the hypostatic union. Um, hypostasis is the, the Greek word. It means nature. And so this is the union of two natures. The wondrous result of this virgin birth is that Jesus Christ would be both God and man. That those two natures would be unified in him. He he is God. He is divine. He has a a divine nature. As John 1, 1 and 2 confirms, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Jesus didn't begin his existence at Christmas. The the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, also called the Word of God, existed in, in eternity past. But the virgin conception at this moment, that that divine person took on humanity. A, a full, complete, genuine human nature like yours and mine, but without sin. Maintaining at the same time complete and and undiluted deity. Neither nature is changed or corrupted. They're not mashed together to create some new thing. They're, They're joined together in unity. Two natures, one person. And in that is the marvel of the virgin birth. A miracle that we we just cannot fully comprehend. And yet the implication of it for us is clear. The birth of this child, God and man in one person, that's, that's hope for us. He's answering a question that was posed in, in what's probably the first bi- book of the Bible to be written. The book of Job comes after Genesis um, in your Bible. It was probably written um, before Genesis was written down. And he asks, as Job wrestles with God, coming to terms with how small and insignificant he is and how holy and powerful and almighty God is. Job says this in hopelessness. Job 9.32, looking at God, he says, He's not a man as I am that I might answer him. That we should come to trial together. There's no arbiter between us who may lay his hand on us both. God is perfectly holy. Righteous, just, he is infinite and eternal and all-powerful and all-knowing. And what are we? None of those things. We are created beings. 
We're not only finite, but we are broken, we are weak, we are sinful. There's no way. There's no way we could ever stand before God, not without being completely incinerated by the glory of his presence. And having sinned against him, rebelled against this holy God, the the question lingers, who could possibly stand between God and man? Who could we ask to be a mediator for us? To whom would you go and say, hey, can, can you talk to God for me? Can you go ask God a question? Can you go tell God I'm sorry? Where would you even start? The virgin birth is the answer. Who can stand between God and man? 1 Timothy 2.5 There is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. He's it. He's the mediator. The God-man plays that role. 1 John 2.1 says, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. Now he just finished reminding us if anyone says he has no sin, he, he's a liar. We've all sinned. And so he adds, if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, a lawyer, a representative. Who is it? Jesus Christ, the righteous. Jesus Christ, as fully man, can, can represent us, can stand as our advocate before the Father. As fully God, he can, he can go there. He can stand in the presence of God. He can, he can represent us in front of the, the one holy judge. But not only did he represent us like a lawyer before a perfect judge, but as we are found inevitably and hopelessly guilty in God's perfect courtroom, as our sin condemns us to death and hell, Jesus, as fully man, represents us to the end. Even taking our place, serving our sentence. So far as I know, no human lawyer has ever represented their client to that extent. And being that it was not only um, a man who represented us, but that he was also God, he himself as perfect and holy and infinite, as he hung on the cross in the space of three hours, took the penalty of sin that we deserve, the the infinite wrath of God, the punishment that would have taken us an eternity to experience is poured out on him and he took it. Like Isaac, he was the sacrifice. Like Samson, he won the victory in his death. And so like the tabernacle and the temple through him, our relationship to God is truly restored. And because of his death, this sacrifice in our place, our sin is taken away. We're we're reconciled to God. One day when he returns, we will enter finally and fully into the presence of the Lord, into this perfect, new, and, and better garden of Eden, a new heavens and a new earth. That's the meaning of the virgin birth. And this is not just a standalone, throwaway miracle that we can kind of take it or leave it at our whim, but the method and the mechanism and the marvelous result of this miracle are right at the very heart of the gospel. It's right there. This plan that God had had orchestrated since before the dawn of time, before the foundation of the earth, that he has been working out to this point. 
So as we celebrate the virgin birth this morning, we're going to close taking communion together. Worship team, you can come and prepare. Communion, communion is, is the remembrance of Jesus as our mediator, that he died in our place to reconcile us to God. So if you're not a Christian this morning, if you've not put your faith in Christ, repented of your sin, and are trusting in him for salvation, then, then this isn't for you. We just invite you to let the elements pass. Um, just observe this morning. and Take the opportunity to consider, why not? Surely you see that you are sinful before God, that you're not perfect, that you have no leg to stand on to, to approach God. And now you've heard what God did to restore you to himself. Why not trust him? Why not even now put your faith in him? And if you are a believer, if you're walking in repentance and faith before the Lord, then we want to celebrate the way Jesus commanded us to. We want to remember what he has done. And so um, we're going to sing together as the elements are handed out. You'll find um, two cups stuck together, the juice on the top, the bread on the bottom. Um, Hold on to it as we sing and we'll partake together. Um, Would you stand?